Welcome to Lagrange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science, technology, and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia, who are a youth organisation with members aged 15 to 25, whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. On today's session, we have Lauren, Lachlan, and Justin. In today's episode of Lagrange Point, it's our Inquinox special, where we talk about all things to do with this fantastic season that we're celebrating, such as daylight savings times, Equinox, and of course, zombies. So while you're chilling out on your mid-semester break, have a listen to this week's episode of LaGrange Point. We're going to kick off with our Launchpad News section. So Lauren, we're talking about Easter, and when I think about Easter, I think about chocolate eggs. Or more specifically, I think about eating way too many chocolate eggs and then getting really, really sick. Were you saying to me before that there is actually a psychological phenomenon attached to me feeling sick when I have too many chocolate eggs the next day? I believe it's called taste aversion. Taste aversion. Taste aversion, which is the association between a food and a really bad event that occurs afterwards. So this is like if I had food poisoning, I might not want to eat that food again. Yeah, your um, brain would associate the bad food. Are there any positive applications to this, or is it all a bunch of just avoiding bad things? No. This isn't just... Um, this normal phenomenon has actually been used to help with curing addictions. Okay, what sort of addictions? Um, alcoholism, for example. So you're saying, like, I associate the taste of alcohol with bad events, I can program myself to not be addicted to alcohol anymore. Exactly. That's really, really interesting. Are you saying, Lauren, that if I... When I'm doing my homework and I get distracted, if every time I get distracted and go on Facebook or something, I have to drink something really nasty-tasting that I would actually eventually program myself to become like a better student? That could actually happen. However, that is not taste aversion. That's more of a conditioning type thing. So it would be associating um, a specific behavior with a punishment. Okay, so taste aversion is associating a taste with a negative thing, while conditioning is associating a bad feeling with an activity? Exactly. So they're sort of opposites of each other. Yeah. Okay, but they're both ways that we can program humans into doing different things. Yes. Okay, that's really interesting, but I'm not sure how much you can really program or teach a human through that way, because, you know, I've made myself sick on chocolate a lot of times, but I still really, really like it. So I guess there must be a threshold for how much this actually works. That's true. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean you'll be scarred from chocolate for the rest of your life, but it may have stopped you eating chocolate, for example, like the next month. Easter occurs around about the equinox, and the equinox is um, a day of equal parts day and night. But are there any are there any suspicious things or myths that occur around about then? Okay, so the equinox has equal parts day and night, so it's a day of balance. There is a myth that started in China, made its way over to America, and ended up stumping the great mind of Albert Einstein himself. It was a local Chinese myth that it was easier to balance an egg on its head, so the narrow side on the bottom, on the spring equinox than any other day of the year. But wait, an an egg which is known for um, being almost impossible to balance could be balanced on its head? Yes, only on the equinox, because it's a day of balance. The funny thing is, um, when this was reported and taken to America, the Chinese equinox and the American equinox are actually different days, separated by about six weeks. So did, that was, did this phenomenon still occur during the American equinox? Well, look, there were definitely photos of eggs balanced on the head, and this was before the time of Photoshop, so something must have been happening to allow these eggs to balance. Whether it was the equinox or not, they had to take it straight to the mind of Albert Einstein. And what did he think? When he was asked to comment, 
Albert Einstein said he was rubbish. He said it was impossible for eggs to be able to stand on their head. But you know what? Life magazine that year published, had a front cover of eggs standing on their head with the title proclaiming that they had proved Albert Einstein wrong. He must have had some egg on his face then. Indeed he did, but it was not because of the equinox that the eggs could balance on their heads. In fact, Albert Einstein had been cheated a little bit. Cheated? Yes, well, eggs are really hard to balance because they're in a regular shape, mm-hmm. and they have yolks inside that have a irregular distribution of mass or a centre of gravity. So the easiest way to balance an egg is to make it more uniform. Um, so if you shake an egg a lot, you actually rupture all the yolk inside of it and make it more uniformly dispersed because it doesn't have a chunk inside of it anymore. So once you get rid of the fact that um, it's got a weight inside that's moving, it makes it a lot easier to balance. So over in China, they've been shaking eggs and balancing them on their heads and calling it the power of the equinox? That's probably right. Or there is secret gravitational magic that um, reaches past even the scope and understanding of Albert Einstein. So either way, Albert Einstein was wrong. I can't agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) Albert Einstein wasn't wrong, but he wasn't right. So today we're having the Equinox special and we're going to talk about a topic that's on everyone's mind. And no, we've already talked about chocolate and we talked also a bit about balancing eggs because everyone does that on the Equinox. No, no. We're going to talk about another very, very important part that always goes along with eggs and the Equinox. And that is, of course, zombies. Why? Well, this is a season where we talk about new life in the in the Northern Hemisphere. It's spring. There's a whole bunch of stuff of rebirth where everything come back to life. The trees and come back to life. In Australia, this metaphor is lost because everything is dying. So we'll be whoosh about that. But we still give each other eggs, which are a symbol of new life. New life, right? So we're talking about that kind of like rebirth, regeneration, season changing and all of that. And that naturally is to people going, well, you know, another season changing, the triumph over death. And that's cool and all, but uh, we know, we've seen a lot of zombie movies to know that when that starts to happen, we should be very worried. Okay, so are zombies even possible? Could we have zombies in real life? Should we be changing it from YOLO to YOLT? You only live twice as well, a zombie? Well, twice. Well, not even twice. Maybe, like, two zombies even come back to life after you kill them. It's like regen- like a recursive zombie. So then you have a zombie of a zombie of a zombie of a zombie of a zombie. But how do you, um, in movies and stuff, when you're killing off zombies, you usually shoot them in the head. I mean, do zombies even function without their brains? Isn't that what um, the myths are all about. So let, let's let's talk and introduce this. We're going to be talking about zombies today. We're going to be discussing all these kinds of questions. Are zombies real? Could they be real? How would they work? Yolt? And all those kinds of questions. So that's what we're going to answer in this section of Extrapolation Station where we talk about zombies. We know a few things about zombies. What's the first thing, Lachlan? Okay, you need to shoot them in the head to kill them. Okay, what's the second thing? They stumble around, and they're brainless, and they moan, and they're not very good at functioning. What's the third thing? They crave... Brains! Right! Yes. So, and the fourth thing is, if you get scratched or bitten, or in contact with them in in the blood or an attack or something like that, you will become a zombie. These are the four rules that I think are pretty universal. I know there's a lot of zombologists who have a lot of theories about their class zombies like Romero zombies or more modern zombies in different categories. For instance, zombies that can run versus traditional zombies which couldn't. And then you even will work in the Haitian voodoo practices of the physical real zombies. But let's stick with general canon of the rough zombie mythos. 
So, looking at that first point, zombies, you have to shoot them in the head to kill them. Why? The brain's the centre for all real activity. You can't do much with your body if you don't have a brain. That's true. Straw Man certainly proved that in Wizard of Oz. So, if you, kill, if you remove the brain, then you actually remove their ability to function, like the, the arms and the legs to move. So, therefore, even though you might chop off an arm, they still keep going because their brain is still telling them, oi, keep moving forward on a really basic level. So does this mean zombies are really just like people who've been revived and brought back to life because they still require the brain to, to function? If you remove the brain, the body will just continue doing what it was doing, but then it will like be like, I don't have any further instructions, collapse. So why don't humans keep going if you cut off their arms and legs? <laughs> well, we can, and there are plenty of examples of where people have cut off their arms and legs to get out of tragical calamitous circumstances. The problem is the body goes into shock when it's like, oh my god, I need to shut down, I have lost a limb. Also, blood goes everywhere and then the body ceases to function. So one of the really interesting parts about zombies is, because there's blah and everything everywhere, they don't actually have any blood. So their circulation systems aren't working, which means that their bod- their cells and their muscles and the things are all dying slowly. Because our muscles work because we feed them oxygen, which is a really interesting part about zombies. Their muscles aren't necessarily being fed oxygen, which would explain... The number two rule, shambling. They don't have enough oxygen getting to them to actually give them speed and motion. Now, the electromechanical functions that make things do stuff, the twitching, that's all controlled by the brains and the neurons. So that can continue fine without blood. But the actual health of the body may not be able to. Whether or not the brain will survive without blood and circulation of oxygen is a very different question. Don't we need energy to function, Justin? But can we not get that energy from devouring delicious brains? Fair enough. I have another theory, um, and this isn't a really canon theory. But what about nanotechnology? Are you saying that zombies are actually just grey goo nanobots? Well, they have nanobots inside them. Okay. Um, so what if we had these tiny little robots inside of us that were, like, maintaining cell function and stuff even after death? So then even if the part of the brain that dealt with identity died, you could still have this body that could still move around and eat things after it had died. So you're talking about someone who's almost comatose, except that they have a program running from these nanobots, which is effectively, hey, eat brains. Hey, hey, you want to eat brains? Hey. And I know you had other plans and life dreams and goals and you want to become an actor, but just eat brains. That's okay. right. And then um, when we're talking about the infectious nature of zombies, um, a cut or a scratch could have nanobots actually infiltrate the bloodstream and then take over that person's brain. And It doesn't even have to be a nanobot. Like It could just be a disease that does that. So it's transferred like a virus. Yeah, a virus or a disease. It doesn't actually have to be nanobots. We have biological replications for that. We call them viruses, diseases, bacteria, infections. So that would explain the infection, but also the functioning. So then we come up to that to, to the to the last part, and when we talk about YOLT or YOLO, really we have to ask the question is, what is death? What does it mean to die? For a zombie, this is a really interesting question, because we, we define death as ceasing to function, right? Our body shuts down, we don't have it. The body is not functioning. Yet, if you're a zombie, you're still basically functioning. We just don't have thought and conscious, and then Lachlan referred to our identity. So the thing about controlling our brain's higher-level functions no longer works, but our lower-level functions, which is continuing to move, devour brains, that was still running. So a virus that damaged brain matter, specifically the higher cognitive functions but kept our sort of survival mechanisms running, wouldn't that theoretically reduce people to a zombie-like state? I think you're right. And so this would effectively be some sort of infectious disease that would spread and cause zombie-like syndromes or panics or, you know, a spread of disease. And this is why people like the CDC in America, the Centre of Disease Control, 
have actually said, okay, look, whatever we had some sort of zombie attack, they kind of did it in jest and said, this is how you prepare for a zombie attack. But realistically, this is what 28 Days Later is based on, that kind of series, where it is a bacteria, it's a virus that spreads. Same with Resident Evil, where it's exactly this kind of thing. So that's a logical explanation for how zombies could occur and a logical explanation for why we will define that. The interesting point then about when we kill them, if we remove the brain, then we're obviously removing all function. They can't keep functioning after that point because we removed that last little vestige that they had of some cognitive ability. But I still think if we, uh, if we removed their ability for their muscles to have either bioelectric response also or oxygen to function, then they wouldn't be able to do anything ever either. A skeleton can't walk around, but a zombie can because it still has muscles. That's a big difference. But I think a zombie should only be able to walk around if it could still be breathing. Because you do need oxygen in order to power your body. Yeah. Okay. So we've looked at why zombies could exist, how they would exist, how we would define them, and really where the answers for the four big questions about zombies come from. Why we need to shoot them in the head, why they shamble around, why they crave brains, and what it even means to kill a zombie. So that's been an interesting examination of the area of zombies. And we'll probably dive more into that if you really want to look at it. The Center for Disease Control's instructions for what to do in a zombie apocalypse. Okay, now we come to a section called Who Am I? Which is where we get somebody to guess the identity of a famous or not so famous scientist. Justin, I have a challenge for you today. Alright, you can test my amazing superior wit and intellect. Who am I? Lachlan Turpin. Oh, wait, no. You're not a famous scientist. Okay, keep going. Oh! <laughs> okay. I was born in London in 1867. Keep in mind, this has something to do with the equinox. By the age of 14, I was a published scientist. Okay. Now, Lord Calvin didn't really publish. He was just a crazy person. So probably not him either. I worked on a farm and a post office before heading off to a sub-Antarctic island's scientific expedition. Ooh, so like Darwin? It's not Darwin. Okay. I enjoyed collecting insects. Ooh, an ophthalmologist. An entomologist? That one. Ophthalmologist oh. for eyes. <laughs> I enjoyed collecting <laughs> eyes. Um, and in fact, I enjoyed collecting insects so much that um, I got frustrated um, that there was not enough time in the day for me to collect insects. I know Darwin had a lot of worms. He, like, counted all the worms in his backyard. But it's not Darwin. No, he it's not Darwin. He went on a Darwin. boat trip. He loved bugs. It's not Darwin? It's not Darwin. Okay. But this guy, he had too much time in his hands, but he wanted more time. Well, I, I can support this guy. I always want more time in my life. So... Did he invent the time turner? He didn't invite the time turner, but can you think of another important invention around the time of Equinox that could have probably been... Longitude and latitude. How does that have to do with time? Oh, because they actually developed that to synchronise time in time zones. Oh, right. Okay. Well, that makes sense. So it's not that? No, it's not that. (laughs) I'm so close. (laughs) Okay. So this guy enjoyed collecting insects so much, and he got so mad that there wasn't enough daylight later in the day for him to collect insects that he invented daylight savings time so he could go out and collect insects in the time that he liked. How does that help him collect more insects? Well, it means he can wake up later. And then work later. So it was basically just the classic uni student. That That's incredible. This guy is amazing. Who is he? So this guy's name is George Vernon Hudson. And you probably haven't heard of him because I hadn't heard of him either. But he was this really, really crazy guy that was an English-born New Zealand entomologist, explorer, and daylight-saving inventor. So 
when we all have an extra hour sleeping when Daylight Saving goes away, we should thank him for that because he's the one who enabled us to get up later, work longer, and find more bugs. And that's the goal of all scientific endeavour, isn't it, Justin? I, I think so. This has been the Who Am I section where we've learnt about George Vernon Hudson. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. But this has been our Equinox special. We've talked about balancing eggs on a point on the Equinox, zombies, and we've talked about other fun things. Eating too much chocolate. And then getting tastes put on. So when you're having a break in mid-semester, have a listen to this and tune in next week for a show on biomimicry. Our ending theme was composed by Audionatics. Head to ysa.org.au for more information on the Young Scientists of Australia.